Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is Mr. Aaron Walker. Aaron is a businessman and life coach, uh, and he has inspired many through his leadership, mentorship, and consistent pursuit of excellence. He enjoys helping others and believes experience is a great teacher, which he definitely has a lot of. He has spent 38 years of his life as an entrepreneur and has been married the entire time, and he's given, uh, which has given him an incredible amount of experience and understanding. Uh, Aaron continues to reach new heights and broaden his perspective of train of entrepreneurship and relationships by examining his own experiences and growing from them. So what's interesting about Aaron is a, is a few things. He's not just like a traditional, you know, sort of quote unquote life coach. Uh, he really has gone through it and, and done it. He's run uh, a number, a number over, over a dozen uh, companies, LLCs, and has been an entrepreneur for a very long time. And it's really interesting because he started off as a pawnbroker, as a pawn shop broker, which I thought was really interesting, and has gotten into several different industries over the course of his life and over the course of his career. So one of the things that I wanted to chat with Aaron about today is how do you or how does he manage uh, and balance not only our relationships when we have our careers, which, you know, whether you're a professional or you're an entrepreneur, how do we start to balance those things? And what can we expect from the ebbs and flows of life? We, we also dive into leadership and understanding the not only the importance of leadership, but what some of the qualities uh, are for us to develop as leaders. So we take a deep dive into leadership. And, and then we talk about the importance of mentorship. And Aaron does a really great job, in my opinion, uh, about talking about the difference between the two and, and really unpacking what leadership is versus mentorship, how we can start to embody them, uh, and when to know uh, whether or not you are ready for leadership and, and whether or not you're ready for mentorship as well. And uh, he shares the importance of things like mastermind groups, finding a mentor, and uh, shares a little bit about his his personal life, which is absolutely incredible. He's, he's got he's got an absolutely amazing story as an entrepreneur, as a husband, as a friend, as a business leader. So that's what we're going to dive into today. Just a quick reminder: head on over to the Man Talks Community page, uh, Facebook page. It's called Man Talks Community. Definitely join the conversation over there. We've got about 3,500 men from around the world who are part of that. And we talk about everything. We've got challenges. We talk about sex, love, intimacy, relationships, business, entrepreneurship. It is a really great resource for a lot of men. And I encourage you to join. And just before I bring Aaron on, please, please, please head on over and subscribe, whether you check us out on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube. Uh, give us a subscribe, give us a, a rating or a review. If you really found this episode worthwhile and you believe that's going to help somebody out, man it forward and just share it with one person. That's how we grow is because of you. So thanks very much if you take the time to do that. Uh, and make sure you tag me in it so I can give you a shout out through our social media platforms. So that's it for right now. And please welcome Mr. Aaron Walker. Hey, Connor. Thanks for having me. Well, listen, man, it's not very often that I have somebody with, uh, you know, I'm, I'm from Canada, so I'm, I'm assuming that I sound like I've got a bit of an accent from you, but you got that lovely Southern draw. It almost sounds like, it's almost <laughs> I like everything. That all they, the time. You the one's got the accent, man. I don't have an accent. <laughs> I was going to say, it's almost like you've got that, like everything sounds a little bit more, uh, 
in you know intentional is what I find with with the sort of like draw. It's it's pretty it's pretty awesome. That's funny. Everybody teases me about my Southern accent. You know, it's what God gave me, and I guess I just got to roll with it. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I never get comments about the Canadian accent. I think it's it's just sort of like a standard thing. You know, like it's somewhere between American and and British, and so we don't we don't really get comments except for in Australia where it's apparently very popular. Uh, very cool. I've always wanted to go to Australia. I don't know what they think about a Southern accent, but I'm soon to tell you. I'm going to plan a trip there, so I'll touch base and let you know. Nice, nice. Well, listen, I, I don't want to uh, go on about this too long. I, I actually want to dive in. And I want to start with our you know, like the question that it's it's kind of funny. I missed one episode where I didn't ask uh, a guest this, and I, I probably had like a dozen or so people reach out and say, "Hey, you didn't ask the question." So I'm going to start with the question, which is, tell us, tell me, and the listeners a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. You know, it has to go way back. I'm 57 years old now, and it has to go back to when I was 18 years old because I came from a very poor family. I didn't have any money. I was working in a local pawn shop, and I'd already decided that's what I was going to do for a living, but I was stuck. Man, I didn't have any way to do this on my own because I didn't have any money. There was these two guys that owned the 21st largest insurance agency in the country at the time were buying diamonds and gold from me, and they were putting it in a lockbox to kind of hedge against inflation. And I went up to them one day and I said, hey, why don't we take your money and my experience and open our own pawn shop? And they started laughing and they said, how old are you? And I said, I'm 18. He said, we've never had an entrepreneur 18 years old approach us about going into business. I said, well, there's got to be a first time for everything. Well, to fast forward, Connor, I've owned 14 businesses now, and it started with that conversation. And we took that business from nothing at 18 years old to I retired the first time at 27. We sold out to a Fortune 500 company. And that is absolutely what started me being an entrepreneur. Very cool. Very cool. That's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a cool journey into entrepreneurship. And I think what, what kind of sparked you to want to sort of have the 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 fortitude and the uh, ambition to just be so forthcoming like that. Because I think a lot of people have ideas, but they are very pensive and hesitant around taking really significant action like that. Yeah. When I was uh, a kid, my mom had a saying, uh, she would say, can't, couldn't do it and could, did it all. And she would never allow us to say the word can't. She'd say, you might not be able to do it, but you're going to try. And it forced me to do some things that I might not otherwise have done. And as a result of that, I was successful at a few things and it built that self-confidence. And so she kind of pushed us to do that. We were very poor. When I say very, I'm talking 600 square foot house. My dad never made over $15,000 a year in his life. The house we lived in, my dad gave $6,500 for it when I was a child. And we were very, very poor people. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I know what I didn't want. And I didn't want to physically work as hard as my dad had to work. And so it just kind of catapulted me to looking for other avenues. And I said, I've got to have some money to start a business. Otherwise, I'm never going to make any. And I haven't worked for anybody since I was 18 years old. I've worked for myself. And now, uh, four decades later, it was worth the initiative that I took, the grit, the determination, the perseverance to go for it. And it was all hinged on that saying that my mom said is can't, couldn't do it, but could did it all. Mm, I like that. I like that. I think it's a very tangible and wise approach to to taking action. So so tell me tell me a little bit about you said you retired for the first time at I think you said twenty six. 
tell me tell me a little bit about that because that seems like a very uh, you know interesting and 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 maybe even challenging time in your life. Like I I can imagine I put myself back into when I was twenty six. And, uh, and I, I'm not speaking for you or, or for anybody else, but when I was 26, if I had retired at that age, it would have been a complete mess. <laughs> so it was, it was, <laughs> and I'll tell you about it. So at 18, we opened, uh, opened a pawn shop in Nashville, Tennessee. That's where I'm from. It started doing pretty good right out of the gate. About a year later, I got married. Robin was in school. She had just graduated from high school two weeks after she graduated a year behind me, we got married. Robin had less than I did as a child, if you can only imagine. And I told her when we got married, I said, Robin, we can't screw this up. I mean, we may never get this chance again. And we're going to take all the money that we make and we're going to live on peanuts, as Dave Ramsey says, you know, rice and beans. And we're going to do that. And we're going to pour all the money back into the company. So when I went in partners with these two guys, I'd given up two thirds of the business to have an ownership stake in it. I was going to run the business and I did not ran everything. They were absentee owners. They had other, you know, uh, interest in other companies that they owned. So I was a hundred percent in control of this venture. And so we went to the bank and borrowed the money. They said they wanted my name on the line as well. So we went to the bank and borrowed $150,000. This was in the 70s. That was a lot of money, Connor. I don't know about you, but when you're 18 in the 70s, $150,000 was a lot mm-hmm. of money. So we took this 10-year loan out. And I told Robin when we got married, I said, we're going to pour every money back onto the loan. And we did. It took us 36 months to pay the loan off. So now we're 21 years old. We have a paid for pawn shop and it was a nice store, very, very large store, had a lot of employees. We were doing very good because we worked day and night, literally around the clock, day and night for three years to get it paid for. And then I said, you know, I can do this again. And I did. I repeated it. Took about four years to pay off the second store. And then I said, I can do it again. And I did. And then I did it again. So we had you know multiple stores and there was a company called Cash America there in Fort Worth, Texas. I wanted a presence in Nashville, Tennessee, and they came to me and wanted to buy my store. And I said, I'm not for sale. I said, I'm 27 years old. What would I do? And they said, we don't care what you do. We want your store. And I refused. And they came back in about a month and they said, Mr. Walker, we really want to be here and we're going to be here, but we want your stores. And I turned them down again, Connor, for the second time. And about a month, maybe six weeks later, they came back for the third and final time. And they said, Mr. Walker, we really want these stores. And I thought, well, I'm going to get rid of them. You know, right. I'm going to just give them a price and they'll go away. And they said, hypothetically, if you were going to sell at your age, 27, have the rest of your life before you, what, what would you price it at? And I sit there in my office. I just built a brand new uh, pawn shop. It was about five, 6,000 square feet, beautiful store. And I was sitting in my office and I had a killer office. And I said, this is what I would sell it for. And I threw a number out there and they said, we'll take it. And I'm like, what? And they said, we'll take it. And I said, no, that was hypothetical. They said, Mr. Walker, you know, no one's going to pay you that for those stores. So I thought about it. I'm a Christian by faith. And so I said, well, I want to pray about it and talk to my trusted advisors and my banker. And I did. And they said, you got to sell it. There's no way that you're ever going to get that in the future. So we did. 90 days later, I woke up on a Monday. I was 27 years old and I'd retired. And I thought, man, this is amazing. Go from nothing to retiring at 27. Well, fast forward 18 months, Connor. I was getting in the bed in the middle of the day, literally not on the bed. I was getting in the bed. I was so bored. I was depressed. I'd gained 50 pounds in 18 months. And my wife woke me up one day from a nap and she said, this is not what I signed up for. She said, you need to get a job or you need to start a new business. 
I went back and bought the company I started with when I was a kid. And we spent the next 10 years quadrupling that business by me working three days a week, investing a huge amount of money into that company. And that leads to another story. Maybe if you're interested, we'll talk about that. But that's uh, kind of what transpired. I wasn't qualified. If I had it to go over, I maybe wouldn't even sold the business. I would have gotten managers to come in and run the business and I would have checked on it. I probably could have grown it much larger than it even was at that time. But it gave me a great head start and it gave me an opportunity to experience something that I thought I would never experience. Mm, very cool. Yeah, I, I like that journey. You know, I think it's it's not very often where somebody has built something for themselves and then you know, not, not walks away from it, but exits it. Right. Because that's, that's what you hear so much in entrepreneurship and in business is, you know, there's, there's usually three questions around what you're, you know, at the very beginning of starting a business is what are you selling? Who are you selling it to? And what's your exit strategy? And I think that last one is, is really, uh, it's almost overemphasized in our mainstream entrepreneurial culture, because some people, you know, maybe some people don't generally want to exit their business as soon as they think. And so being a 27-year-old kid or being a 27-year-old man in a lot of ways and, and exiting your, you know, something that you've grown and built and, and, and really developed for yourself and, and your, your life and your family, I would imagine was a bit confronting. You know, I think about at 27 is when I left my singing career. I was, I was a classical musician by trade and I, I was, had been singing opera in, you know, countries and in, in Europe and China and all over North America. And when I walked away from that, it was hugely disruptive to, to my, you know, to my own life, because all of a sudden, I didn't really know who I was without that. Well, your identity, your identity was tied up into what you were doing. Exactly. And that's why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I want to I want to keep going forward, but I want to actually ask you a question, just back it up a little bit, because you mentioned that both you and your wife sort of, you know, came from, you know, I guess, poor, poor families and, and, you know, didn't really have much growing up. And I'm curious how you have seen this play into people's uh, versions of success and how this shapes people to either need to succeed or avoid success altogether, because it seems to be something that's, that's very formative. So um, I would love for you to unpack that a little bit. Well, you know, there's all different versions of persons out there. I talk a lot about having a successful life and a significant life. And one of the things that I was missing early on in my career was the significance piece. It was all about the success. And I was really running from something, not to something. And I didn't want to work as hard as my dad did. My dad was a general contractor. And I mean, he literally dug the footings with a shovel. He'd dig the water lines with a shovel. He would frame the house himself. I mean, he would put the roof on. I've seen my dad literally sweep the snow off the roofs in the winter so he could re-roof them so we would have something to eat. And my mom used to put canned goods in the pantry and nail a board over it during the summer. So during the winter, we would have something to eat. Now, I'm not trying to make people feel bad for me. I just want you to understand where we came from. And I think that gave me a lot of determination to be successful. But it wasn't really a healthy sense of determination because I wasn't like chasing something that I was passionate about. I was running from something I was afraid of. And I just didn't want to physically work that hard. And I wanted to have better. I didn't want to just get by. I wanted something that was uh, there was more out there and I knew there was more out there. I just didn't know how to attack it. I didn't know how to get it. And the only way I knew was to work hard. And 
The, the other thing is, is I wasn't afraid to approach people, obviously, kind of like this scenario with the two businessmen when they started laughing. They said, nobody 18's ever approached us before. Well, I've heard that, Connor, over and over and over in my career now. We've owned 14 businesses over the past 39 years, and I hear all the time, well, it's never been done that way, or you can't do that. And I always say, no, what you mean is you can't do that. That's what you're saying. Like, you better move because I'm going to run over you because I am going to do this. And I never allowed other people to shape what I was attempting to do. A lot of people were always afraid. And I say fear missing an opportunity more than you fear failure. So for me, it wasn't about failure. It was about, hey, I want to succeed. I want to be significant. I want to be successful. And I'm not going to let someone else shape the way I view things and how I go for it. And when I said we literally worked around the clock, literally sometimes I would bathe off in the sink at the office and change clothes and not go home. And then I would be there the next day. I'm seeing a lot of that today missed. No disrespect to a lot of the millennials, uh, but that work ethic has disappeared a bit in the millennial generation because we're not willing to delay gratification. And I would even like to talk about that for just a little bit. Robin and I elected to take an $18,000 a year salary for nine years while we built our company. We lived in a 500 square foot condo that I paid $19,500 for. And after I sold it, I bought a $79,000 house that we gutted inside and outside and redid it. I could have afforded any house I wanted at that point. I could have had any car. I could have taken any trip. We were multi-stores into this, but I said, I want to live today like no one else. So later I can live like no one else. And it's just that delayed gratification. And I think you've got to search from within you personally to see what your motivation is. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting because I think in a lot of ways, you know, we're starting to see a little bit of a resurgence of that. You know, I see people like Gary Vaynerchuk really talking about the value of hard work and hustle and ambition and, and you know, trying to almost reinstitute that into people's consciousness. And it's such a simple, it's such a simple idea, right? You know, find, find what you really, I can't remember who said it, but it's, it's uh, find what you really want to do and then let it kill you or find what your, what your purpose is in the world and let it kill you. And it's just that idea of like, you know, find why you're here or why you think you're here and then give yourself to that. And that might mean that there's times where you, you know, you put in an incredible amount of work and other people don't understand why you're doing that. So how does one sort of fend off that instant gratification? Because, you know, something that I think is very real for people, especially now with, you know, the, the prominence of social media, Facebook, Instagram, a lot of people's success is now being weighed and viewed through likes and follows. So in an age of instant gratification, yeah. how do we start to balance off that that sense of I should be you know rich now, famous now, et cetera, with putting in the work that will naturally bring those things as a, as a byproduct? You know, I do uh, four Facebook lives a week and uh I had fun with it initially two years ago when I first started. It started out as kind of an experiment just to see, and people really, really gravitated to it because I was very vulnerable, transparent. I was authentic. And quite honestly, I hate the Facebook persona because everybody's showing you what life looks like in Hawaii and they're on a jet and, you know, the four-hour work week and, you know, all this. And I'm like, you know, that's not reality. And we're comparing our beginnings to other people's middle or end. And you can't do that. 
first of all, you're going to be sorely disappointed if you're comparing it all. When I wrote my first book, View from the Top, I didn't want to write it at first. And the reason I didn't is because the guys I was in with in mastermind groups, you know, I was in Dave Ramsey's mastermind group for over a dozen years. Dave and I've been friends for 25 years now. We started our businesses at the same time together and I was his second sponsor. So I went 21 straight years sponsoring Dave's show and we developed a great friendship and he invited me to his mastermind group along with Ken Abraham. Ken's got 115 books in print. Dan Miller, 48 Days to the Work You Love. You know, he's got eight or 10 books. Dave's got probably 15 books now and he's selling millions and millions of copies. And someone told me, you know, you should write a book. And my first inclination was, oh my goodness, who would read my book? I'm in a group with all these guys that are selling millions of copies a year and nobody's going to read my book. And a guy named Ken Davis and I are in Mastermind together. He wrote a book called Fully Alive. And he said, Aaron, hold on. He said, when I wrote Fully Alive, he said the first year that it was in print, I got 17 emails. And those 17 people have one thing in common. They were going to commit suicide until they read my book. And I sit there and thought about that. He said, you're using the wrong metrics. He said, if your book changed one life, would it not be worth it? And I started laughing. I said, you're dead gum right. It'd be worth it. And I'm going to write a book and I'm going to crush it. And for the next two years, I spent writing that book because the purpose was different. Right. The purpose was helping ordinary men become extraordinary in all that they do. I wanted to help someone understand that it's not just about success, but it's about significance. How is your life going to be better as a result of having known me? See, people don't care what you have. They only care about how your life is transformational to theirs. What is it that you're going to do or bring or say, or what words of edification, what words of encouragement are you going to bring that's going to impact their life? And once you establish that, you build a rapport with those people that money cannot describe. And so I started thinking, yes, that's what I want. I want to teach people to make all the money they can and let it be a tool to live your life amazing, but pour into other people and give and live a life of significance. And once I discovered that, it was pretty easy for me to keep up and go forward to help transform the lives of other people. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I I mean, that kind of brings me to... Yeah, and I, and I do want to touch on the book here in a minute, but it brings me to a, a, you know another question of, as somebody who's been in the entrepreneurial space for you know for for such a long time, and you know has sort of seen the the ebbs and flows, I'm curious, you know, because you do work a lot with with men as well, and I'm curious as how you have seen the entrepreneurial journey change, you know, since you were in your early twenties to what you see today. So let's, let's start there. Cause then I kind of want to get your perspective on, on men and masculinity, but let's start with the entrepreneurial journey. Well, you know what? I may surprise you, Connor, with my answer, but I think it's more exciting now and it's easier today than it's ever been. When I first started, I didn't have a choice. Right. We didn't have the Internet. And all you guys are listening. Go, what? It's like, man, the Internet. we didn't have the Internet. Right. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't. It's like I got presented an opportunity and this guy pointed it out to me. His name's Kyle Lugnot. Kyle pointed this out to me, he read my book and he called me. He's 35, 40 years old. He called me and he said, Big A, he said, I've got an observation. He said, when you had your opportunity, you grabbed it, you ran with it, you crushed it. He said, today. He said, I'm paralyzed. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I have so many opportunities. I don't know which one to do. 
And it is so exciting when you think about it, because now you can be location independent and you can easily have a job making six plus figures and even seven figures. I've got friends, eight figures annually that they're making from their basement. There's a lady here in Nashville teaching people how to use coupons. She formed a Facebook group. She has 350,000 followers now. She makes over a million dollars a year from Target and Walmart paying her to advertise on her Facebook page. And she does it out of the comfort of her basement in Franklin, Tennessee. And I'm like, we could have not done that 30 (laughs) years ago. So the opportunities that are present out there now, oh, my gosh, this is the best time on earth that you could do that. We have an e-commerce business that we operate and uh, we, we do it from our office. We manufacture a product in China. We import it to California. We send it to FBA. They We never see it. We manufacture it. We import it and we sell it and we never touch it. We never even see it. And I'm like, man, this is the greatest thing on the planet. The businesses that we can run now from our basement, from our offices, and then manufacture and import, and we never have to touch it all because of the internet. Man, listen, I can lead calls now. See, like right now I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, but I could be in Australia or I could be anywhere. I can lead coaching calls. I can lead mastermind calls. No one ever knows where I'm at, right? Location independent. Man, that is amazing at the opportunities that we have today. So you you might have expected a downer, but for me, it's the most exciting time we could ever live right now. Yeah, I, you know, I really love the the example that you provided of the woman, you know, that's grown the Facebook profile or platform group and and is, uh, you know, making a million dollars through through coupons because it it is true, you know. I think that entrepreneurialism has changed so rapidly, and even in the past decade, in the past two decades, you know, since the big dot com burst, but it it really is an interesting time to be an entrepreneur because they're so many ways to make profit. And that is actually one of the, it, it's it's the, the double-edged sword, right? It is simultaneously the biggest blessing and the biggest curse because a lot of people fall into that opportunity paralysis and where they see that they could have success in so many different lanes that they're not too sure which one to even go down first, or they try and go down you know, five or six of them simultaneously and end up failing miserably. And so uh, I'm curious as, you know, in, in Connor, your opinion. Can I touch on that? I don't mean to interrupt yeah. you, but I, I, yeah, please, touch, please I think this is a real important part of the interview. And I'm a life and business coach. That's what I do. I teach people and train people how to grow their businesses. Here's the biggest fault I would say to most entrepreneurs is they're an inch deep and a mile wide. They're trying to do so many things. You don't have the bandwidth. Read you know, Gary Keller's book, you know, the one thing, and he talks about in there how we need to be very, very intentionally focused on one thing that can be one thing at a time. I have multiple businesses, but you can focus intentionally at that time. Greg McCowan wrote a great book called Essentialism, where he says we need to be an inch wide and a mile deep. The problem with most everybody that I've coached or will coach in the future is that you're throwing too broad of a net. You need to really hone in and focus on who your avatar is. You need to be an inch wide and a mile deep. You need to be an expert at this thing. And people will hire you more than they would if you were an inch deep and a mile wide trying to do six things at one time. 
And you can't multitask. I don't care who you are. You cannot give all of your energy to two different things simultaneously. I even let a business go recently that was a profitable business because I couldn't focus on the primary thing that I wanted to do. So if you don't hear anything on this interview but this, be an inch wide and a mile deep, and you will be twice as successful, if not more so, than you are today. Yeah, I like that. And, you know, I think it's we, we can see examples of that really everywhere. I mean, even I talked about Gary Vee before, but even somebody like Gary Vee, what he's exceptional at is producing content, you know, and that is probably the number one thing that he focuses on first and foremost. And his business actually benefits from that. And then he allows the business to sort of run itself. But what he really focuses in on is being this this messenger and this this person that's just producing an absolute ton of content, like more content than is consumable by <laughs> like by mm-hmm. by everybody out there listening, right? Like you could spend your whole day just listening to the content that he's pumping out on a daily he and does weekly that, basis. He does that very intentional. And let me just say this too, to help some of you folks that have the shiny object syndrome, everywhere you look, there's opportunity. That's true. And that will get you in trouble and it will keep you from being an inch wide and a mile deep. And let me tell you how we shun against that. We have Google documents that once a quarter I'll fly and meet my COO in Chicago and we'll spend two days in a hotel suite and we'll put up white paper all over the walls and we'll plan everything that we're going to do. We know the themes of every month. We know the book titles that we're going to read. We know the questions we're going to ask. We know the people we're going to interview. We know the shows that we're going to be guest on. We know the blog post. I have 40 blog post titles correlating with the themes in the books that we're going to read. I know exactly what I'm going to be doing each and every day. And if I look on my sheet and it's not there, I don't do it. And so it helps you focus. Greg McCowan wrote the book Essentialism I was telling you about. If you'll read that book and understand that you need to be that inch wide and a mile deep and then read Brian Moran's book, uh, The 12-Week Year, you will focus on the task every single day and you have lead indicators that hold you accountable and the goals will take care of themselves. The problem is, is we don't have lead indicators and we don't focus on the task. We focus on the goal. But if you'll incrementally do what you know you have to do every single day, keep your head down, you'll be amazed at how fast you'll grow your business. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I remember I had uh, Greg McKeown on the on the podcast talking about essentialism when his book, uh, his book first came out. And the, the funny thing was I hadn't actually read the, the book when I interviewed him. I had done a bunch of background research on it and whatnot. But I was so moved by the concept in the book that I immediately went and bought it. And, you know, it really has shaped a lot of uh, a, a lot of how we have actually done things here at Mantox, just focusing in on, you know, what is absolutely essential and trying to get rid of the rest and, and cut out what's, you know, what's just there for the sake of being there, because maybe it looks flashy or, uh, you know, is whatever. It's, everybody finds reasons and excuses. It's funny, we find reason and excuses to, to not do things, but we also find excuses to hold on to things that we know aren't working as part of like the sunk cost bias. So um, anyway, I would I would love to just touch a little bit on 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 your book and you know some of the some of the content that's in it because I think it's it's really an, it, just like a very simple but straightforward and powerful concept. So why the view from the top? Tell me about tell me about that first and foremost. Yeah, well, nobody wants a view from the bottom, right? <laughs> I mean, we, we all want to be on top. But here's the thing that I make very clear in the book, though. I can't determine what your view from the top is. Robin and I 
40 years coming up in marriage now, the 38 this coming June, uh, we've lived our lives very intentional, very proactive. I don't let other people say, you should do this. I tell people, don't should on me, right? It's like, hey, it's mine and Robin's life. We're going to design it. We're going to live the way we want to live. We're going to be very proactive in some things. There's some things that are not important to us. Then there are other things that are very important to us. And it's prioritizing your priorities. There's not a such thing as work-life balance. That's also a myth. You have to determine the things for you that are important. And that's why it's prioritizing your priorities and then focus all your effort and energy on those things. And that's what we've elected to do. So I wrote the book talking about some of the challenges that we face today. And I even titled the first chapter, Can't, Couldn't Do It and Could Did It All, kind of laying out my mindset. So your success is directly proportionate to your mindset. Carol Dweck talks about it in her book, Mindset. You've either got a growth or a fixed mindset. Thankfully, I had a growth mindset and I'm like, I'll figure this thing out. A fixed mindset says, ah, it's just the way I am. It's just the way I was born. It's the hand I was dealt. Little man can't get ahead. You know, I'm like, you need to change your mindset. Like you need to push through those upper limit challenges that, you know, that the big leap talks about with Gay Hendricks. He says that everybody's got ceilings. And you've got to get people around you to push through that glass ceiling. You've got to go, you know what? I can't get to where I want to go based on what I've done in the past. So I've got to get trusted advisors around me to help me push through those upper limit challenges. So I know that. That's why I hire coaches. That's why I'm in mastermind groups. That's why I'm a constant student. I'm looking to personally grow. I spend 10% of my gross income on personal development every year because I know that I've got to constantly be sharpening my axe. And so I've got to do that constantly. So I talk about that in the book. I talk about the rewards that are headed your way that you're not even familiar with right now, because every time you go through a new door, new opportunities open. I talk about breaking free. And let me explain what I mean by that just a little bit is not allowing other people to dictate your life. Henry Cloud wrote Boundaries, which is a great book, and it teaches you how to build boundaries. And I Uh, talk about that in the book. The thing that we haven't talked about, maybe at some point you can have me back and we'll talk about this. There's a chapter that's probably the most pivotal point in the book. It's chapter six. It's called Blindsided. August 1st, 2001, I was blindsided. Business was great. My life was amazing. Two beautiful kids. I'm 40 years old at the time. And I was headed to work on August 1st, 2001 morning. And I ran over and killed a pedestrian on my way to the office. And my life, Connor, came to a screeching halt that day. I took the next five years off. I didn't do anything. I kind of reevaluated my life. I sold my business. We traveled all over the world to kind of get my legs back under me. God gave me the grace that I needed to overcome that. And then from that, we went into the construction business and we built a very successful construction company also. But I talk about in the book having... Dave Ramsey and Dan Miller and Ken Abraham, guys like that. And everybody says, yeah, I would be in a group like that too if I could be in there with Dave Ramsey. And I'm like, Dave Ramsey gave me advertising when we started out. He was on one radio station in Nashville. See, all these guys became very successful as a result of being in a mastermind, right? Not just a bunch of successful guys got together. It was because of that that they were able to, to hone their skills every single week for over a decade together. And then I talk about having focus and choosing wisely. And I talk about the last thing in the book is overcoming and letting yourself go of bitterness. 
It's something that really holds us back. It squelches all of our creativity. And there was twice in my life where I was extremely bitter and I had to let that go in order to excel to the next level. And then I just tell people to put the big rocks in first. Always, you know, for me, the big rocks are my faith and my family and the relationships and then business. And if you keep those things in the correct order, you'll have huge success in your life. And I just tell you that you don't know what you don't know. And if you don't get surrounded uh, yourself by individuals that can help take you to that level, you don't know what view you're missing. So if you want a view from the top, these are the exercises you've got to go through in order to get it. Mm, yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that. And I appreciate your your openness and transparency about about what happened, because I think in, in a lot of ways, you know, we we all face these challenges in our life, whether we are, you know, whether we we have an accident like that or we lose somebody or, you know, maybe we have a business that that goes bust and it sort of takes us down a peg. And and we we think that everything's going well until that that sort of moment where something pops up and and just blindsides us and, and takes us out. So any uh, I, I don't I don't want to dive into it too much because I, you know, I have a few other things that I would love to cover with you. But any any insight on how to manage that, because I think that. Getting blindsided, I know uh, a few people that have reached out to me personally, you know, through Instagram and Facebook recently that that have been blindsided uh, in, in their life. And the, the circumstances are different from yours. But I, I'm definitely curious on, on how people can actually um, start to recover from that. So if you have any insight on, on that, I think that'd be very valuable. Well, I appreciate that. I was pretty down, obviously. You know, it wasn't my fault. Uh, this guy was 77 years old. His name was Enrique, and he was from the Philippines, and he'd lived here in Nashville for years and years. And he had been warned repetitively not to cross the street alone. And the truth is, is he just didn't see me. I mean, I was driving, you know, 50, 55 miles an hour, and he was trying to catch a bus, and he just ran out in front of me. He just flat ran out in front of me, and I couldn't stop. And you know, I wasn't cited for it. It wasn't my fault. And there wasn't any big lawsuit or anything like that. But it still didn't take away that I had run over and killed somebody. It was somebody's father and their dad and their husband and their brother. And, you know, it was like it was tough to deal with that. And uh, I had people around me. I've been in accountability groups for over 30 years now. Uh, I was pretty involved in our church, our local church. And God just gave me the grace uh, through all these relationships and coaching and through counseling. And, um, you know, we had to go to extensive counseling for a period of time. And I had to be talked through that, letting me know that, you know, it wasn't my fault. Here's the thing, too. And I want you guys to hear this, too. Be very mindful of what you're doing when you're driving. I wasn't doing anything, but today there's so many people that are distracted with texting and phone calls. And if I had been doing something that was to my negligence that I had run over and killed somebody, I don't know that I would have ever gotten over it. You see, at that point, it's too late. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're hearing my voice today, to think about paying attention, because if I'd been a kid or, or, you know, a little child, and I had been doing something wrong. A lot of people drink and drive. And I'm like, I would have never gotten over that, right? Because it was to my negligence. So I would just encourage you to be proactive in thinking through what you do when you're driving and pay attention, right? It can happen at any moment. But surround yourself with people. I'm a huge, huge proponent of relationships, and I've had very, very close friends for my entire life because I make myself vulnerable and transparent. I don't pretend like I know everything. I don't have a veil up that says, hey, I got it all figured out because I don't have it all figured out. 
right? There's so many areas that I need to grow in. And you can't do that alone because the enemy to excellence is isolation. And if you want to not grow, don't get around people. If you want to excel and you want to take your life to heights you've never been, you need to surround yourself with people with different life experiences, different filters, different situations, because they have a different perspective and they can open your eyes to many possibilities. So I would just simply say, be around a lot of people that you have strong relationships with. Yeah, it's it really, really solid insight. And, you know, I think one of the things that stood out to me about what you're talking about, especially with blindsiding, is is that, you know, life is going to blindside us. And I, you know, I think that everybody experiences that at some time, whether it's, you know, a, a divorce or breakup or, you know, losing a job or a family member unexpectedly or whatever it is, life is going to bl- blindside us, but, but we shouldn't be the blindsiding. You know, that's kind of what I hear in, in your messaging in some ways is don't be the cause or, or not that you don't, you know, need to avoid it, but, but in some ways we are our own preventative measures. And so, you know, not drinking and driving and that kind of stuff uh, can help us from not be the blindsiding in our own lives, which I think is very powerful. Listen, I, I want to ask you before we just move on here, I wanted to backtrack a little bit and just ask you about the, the evolution that you've seen within men, because you do work a lot with men. And you know, it sounds like you've been an active sort of participant and leader in, in the men's space over the last you know three or four decades. And I would just love to hear your perspective on how masculinity has shifted or, or evolved uh, over the last few decades and, and some of the struggles that you've seen uh, in men that, that they've been facing and, and if, that's, if that's evolved as well. Yeah, I think the definition of masculinity has to be defined before we can accurately talk about this. And a lot of people think it's great big guy, tough man. I don't take anything off anybody kind of mindset. You know, really for me, masculinity is being a servant leader. Uh, to those that are around you. And that sounds wimpy to a lot of people, but quite honestly, it'll get you much further with your family, with your wife, uh, with the community, with people. And I I teach people to give. Grant wrote a great book called Give and Take. And uh, I reference a lot of books because I read two or three hours every day and I've been doing that forever. And people say, I don't like to read. Well, you need to get over it. (laughs) You need to start reading. You just don't learn through osmosis, right? You got to devote a lot of attention to these books and get good content. I quit watching the news about 15 years ago. So now I just read. But in this book, he talks about where we really mess up is we're takers. We're not givers. And the guys that give the natural reciprocity out of that is people want to give back to you. So we probably spend 25% of our time now giving with no expectations. But as a result of that, we have so many opportunities and so many people that introduce us to other people that we can't even fulfill our obligation uh, to reaching out to every one of those people. It's just the real, like when we started, we had the construction company and people say, oh, big A, you've lost it. But we started a group called the Master Custom Builder Council and we formed it with our competitors. The other 10 elite builders in Nashville, we all got together and we formed a group where we started sharing best business practices and we started sharing subcontractors and vendors. And as a result of that, it made us closer together It honed our skills. We were able to pool our resources and get discounts, which allowed us to be more profitable. We did parade of home events and we donated the money back to charity. In the last year I was in construction, there were 10 builders. We did $115 million in business because we pooled our ideas, our best practices and our resources together. And it made us very, very competitive in this market because we were giving. 
And you're like, man, there's no way I would do that. Well, you're thinking wrong because anybody in any organization could do what I'm talking about. Now, there's going to be people take advantage of you. That's just the part of the cost. It's just like you know, at the grocery store, you know, bad fruit is, you know, you got to throw some of it away. Same way with this. There's some people that will take advantage of you. But when you're willing to give and help and teach and show, I had a guy call me recently and said, I want to join your mastermind. I said, okay. He said, but I'm going to be honest with you. The only reason is I've been watching you from afar and I love what you do and I want to coach and I want to lead masterminds just like you. And I said, praise the Lord. Come on. I'll teach you everything I know. And as a matter of fact, I even wrote a book called The Mastermind Blueprint. Seth Godin recently endorsed it. And in that, I teach you exactly what we're doing. I show you step by step. I help you understand how to build. So that people say, why would you do that? Because there's millions of people out there that need help. And I don't have the market cornered. I can show you how to do it in your space and with the people that in your sphere of influence, it's having the abundance mindset, not a scarcity mindset. And when you develop that abundance mindset, things just come back to you 10 X and I'm living proof. We have 12 mastermind groups. Now we're averaging about one person every three days joining our group. We'll have 200 people by December. And it's because we are teaching other people how to do the same thing. You can do that in any industry you're in. You've got to give, give, quote Gary Vanderchuk again, jab, 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 right hook. Give, 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 and then ask. But you can't ask if you're not willing to give. Yeah, I like that. I really like the, the last part. You know, you, you, <laughs> you, can't give, you can't get it if you're not willing to give. And I think it's so true. And we, we've seen that as well, you know, in our mastermind groups. And I think you touched on it before. I think you said isolation is the enemy of greatness or isolation is the enemy of success. Excellence. Excellence. There it is. Yeah. And it, and it's so true. You know, the, the, whether you're in business or not, whether you're an entrepreneur or not, you know, whether you just want to be an exceptional husband or, or father or community leader or, you know, VP or, you know, working a nine to five at, you know, at, at a store convenience store. It's like, if you want to be excellent at what you do in your life, being surrounded by exceptional people who are going to push you, we're going to hold you accountable that's that's the type of environment that you need to be in. And so, you know, I, I'm just curious as to what what you think and what you've seen has has stopped people from from diving into getting that type of support in their life. Well, everybody, not everybody, a lot of people are living a facade. They they'll only let you get arm's length. They don't want you to look behind the curtain. They don't want you to know that there's some areas of life that you're struggling in. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in your finances. Maybe it's in your ability to run your business. Maybe things that you're presenting on Facebook are not congruent with the way you're really living your life. Uh, we're living a facade. And I teach people to let the wall down because strength starts at the very foundation. And if I've got to work through a facade to begin with, I can't really help you. So we teach transparency and authenticity and vulnerability. And a lot of guys go, I ain't no way I'm going to do that. I'm not going to get in that room and tell, well, you're going to always be right where you're at. And until you have the courage to go, I don't have it all together. Mm -hmm. I don't know every answer. I don't have every perspective. I don't have every contact. I don't have a lot of things. I wasn't gifted with this or, you know, when you say that, it sheds light in the darkness and other people can help you. And see, if you want other people to be vulnerable and transparent with you, they'll only go as far as you do with them. So as far as you're willing to go with them, they'll be the same with you. But it takes a leader in order to do that. That's the reason my Facebook lives are so popular is because I'm authentic and I say, hey, 
I don't know the answer to this. Maybe you guys can help me. Or my life experiences has taught me this. I don't want you to go down that same path. I peel the curtain back. I show them everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And people resonate with that. They're like, man, I can identify with that. When everything is so polished and perfect and everybody's, you know, on the beach in Aruba and they're fly down on their jet and there's no problems. Well, I know differently because I coach a lot of those guys and their life is falling apart at the seams because they're spending all their time at work and they're coming home with a pocket full of money to a house full of strangers. They don't even know their little boy's baseball coach. They don't know their little girl's recital teacher. They don't know their wife's favorite color or where she likes to eat dinner. See, because they're not manning up and doing the things that God called them to do to lead their family first. They're doing it at the expense of the almighty dollar. There's nothing wrong with making money. I hate it when people with money go, money's not important. I'm going to go, you liar. Let's take it away from you and see how important it is. But don't make it your God. Don't make it the thing that is the only reason that gets you up. We need a purpose bigger than money. Money's a tool for us to live our life. We don't live to work. We work so we can live. And so I teach people to do that and get money in the right perspective. One of the biggest hindrances we have is that we, you know, all worship at the altar of the dollar and we just got to quit doing it. I like it. I like it. I like the analogy because I think in so many ways I've, you know, I've seen a, a lot of the same thing where guys get lost in the pursuit of, of monetary value and they base their own self-worth on how much money they can make. And, you know, in a lot of ways we as men get, we, we allow ourselves to be, to be success objects, you know, and our ability to earn is directly correlated to our ability to feel like we have worth in the world. And that's yeah, a very, when you, that, when you lose that, then you've lost all your identity and your self-worth and there's nothing further from the truth. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it becomes so hard to, to, you know, climb out of that hole. And, and especially, you know, if your if your worth is tied to your financial ability and your your ability to to bring an in income, it can be very challenging if you're an entrepreneur and all of a sudden your business, you know, has a few bad months or a bad year. And if, you know, it can be very challenging to pull yourself out of that space if, you know, your your worth and your confidence is tied to your ability to make income. And so we need to be able to to find a, a deeper strength outside of that. So I like the I like the idea of, you know, don't worship at the altar of, of money. Yeah, never tie your identity to possessions or titles. So good. Well, listen, Aaron, I mean, we're, we're about to wrap up here. So um, maybe I would just love to hear, you know, one, one more piece of insight because we have pretty big mastermind community through Man Talks. And so I'd love to hear uh, just like your, your insight on, on why a mastermind is so important and maybe uh, one, one piece of, of what you found in terms of running a very effective group. Well, thank you. Our, our turn rate is less than 2%. We've had guys that's been with us for years and years and years. And one of two reasons, or one of many reasons, I should say, first of all, we're very structured. The guys know exactly what to expect. We have accountability tools that we fill out. There's 10 items that we rank ourselves every single week. That is then posted in Facebook along with the rest of your group, private Facebook, not for the world, but for your group. So they know exactly how you're tracking each and every day. We have a theme every month that we coincide with a book that we read every month. There's designated reading and questions that go hand in hand each week. We have man in the middle every week where there's a focus on a couple of the guys. Uh, we have two live meetups a year to where they can meet each other, you know, face to face. And we have about a 90% success in the live attendance from eight different countries now. So we have over 90% attendance on the 
video conference calls every single week because we don't allow you to be missing because people are paying money for you to be in there. It's not just hurting you, but it's hurting the whole group. So it's very stringent guidelines. We have a very strong mission, vision, and values as to what we allow and disallow. There's a screening process that we go through on every single person. Just because you've got the money doesn't mean you're going to get in the group. We want to be sure that you have a mindset of being a giver and not a taker. If you have a whole room full of givers, you're going to get everything you need. And so we really follow uh, a regimented schedule. Uh, We want to give value. Uh, There's constant interviews for professionals that I bring in every single month that's a part of it. Uh, There's a constant uh, theme in regards to how we reach out and help and support and endorse books and uh, courses that other people are doing or the Alexa briefs or whatever it is that you're promoting or your podcast, we all jump on the bandwagon and we help each other because next time it's going to be your turn. You're going to need the help. And we don't hold anything back. If the guys are slacking, uh, we really hold their feet to the fire in these mastermind groups and we make sure that they're accomplishing what they need to do. If people are not showing up for you know the meetings, we ask them to leave. I mean, just because we're getting the money doesn't mean you can stay. We want people to participate. And so it's not for everybody. It's not for the faint at heart. And a lot of people can't handle that kind of accountability or that kind of pressure. But we're only dealing with people that really want to excel in every area of their life, both personally and professionally. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, it sounds very, uh, very similar. I mean, our, our focus is very similar. So yeah, I, I appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Maybe just one more thing. What is what's up and coming that, that you have uh, in the near or, or not too distant future that you're very excited about? Yeah, we're starting a uh, second tier mastermind right now, not for business owners, but for business owners, top tier executives. And so if you have a guy that, you know, doesn't, he's not, you know, uh, doesn't own the company, but you really entrust a lot to him. We're starting a group right now with two very, very highly successful guys leading the group that we're going to have a place to put your executives. And so if you've got one, two, three, four top tier guys that you want to grow using these same metrics and boundaries that we're implementing for the owner, uh, it's just to help take them to the next level. So we're launching that. We've also just uh, sanctioned a lady to do the women uh, because it's just men that are in our groups, nothing against women. It's just that there's things that men deal with that I'm very proactive in dealing with. And I can't discuss that when women are present. We're making women's men great, though, if they're a better husband, a better dad as a result of coming out of our mastermind group. But there's a lot of women that said, hey, what about me? And uh, so we've developed uh, a person for that. And now we're sending women uh, into a group that they can stay up on their personal development, just like the men. So those are two things that I'm really fired up about. Nice. That sounds great. Well, listen, thanks very much for joining me on the Man Talks podcast. I loved having you on here. Thanks, Connor. Appreciate you having me, buddy. We'll see. Wonderful. And for everybody else that's out there listening, uh, stay tuned. Don't forget to leave us a review, whether you're on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify, which we're on now. Uh, and and don't forget to man it forward. Share this podcast episode with somebody that you think would appreciate it and, and need to hear it. So man it forward. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm-hmm.